Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Byers, and we're here today with Anne Lawrence Mathers, professor of history at the University of Reading, about her new book, Medieval Meteorology, Forecasting the Weather from Aristotle to the Almanac, out this year with Cambridge University Press. Hello, Anne. How are you? Hello. I'm fine, and it's lovely to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. How's your semester wrapping up? It's uh, busy at the moment because we're still trying to teach, but students are being told they've all got to get tested and get ready to go home. Now we're into December and life is kind of complicated. Mm, Indeed it is. Um, It adds a whole new level of uh, stress and maybe foolishness for the the end of the semester, as if it's not stressful enough, right? Yes. Well, congratulations on this new publication. It was really enjoyable. I learned a lot. Uh, it was uh, wonderful, really thank fun you. too. Thank you, you're a lovely writer. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. That's really <laughs> lovely to hear. Good. All right. So my first question, as always, attempts to put the current work in the context of your career. So as I see it, as I'm looking over your books, right, your earliest book is an exhaustive examination of religious developments in medieval Northumbria. Mm -hmm. And it is the work of a true medievalist's medievalist right there, right? Yeah. And then the next, The True History of Merlin the Magician, has this tantalizing name. And it's nimble, but it is a really demanding history of the Arthurian legend. And then that work is followed by Magic and Medieval Society, which reads almost, I mean, it's almost a textbook, right? With this wide, but still rigorous coverage of Western Europe from the 11th to the 15th centuries. So when I look at this, I see a clear interest in spiritual practice, licit and illicit, clerical and lay, but spiritual practice as it's culturally understood in the medieval era. I can trace that line quite easily. But then there's this jump here to medieval meteorology, another great title, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, I feel like this is a bit of a divergence, or at least I'm not seeing how we got here. So I would really appreciate it. My question to you is, how did we get here? How did you come to write this book? Okay, well, as you've just kindly said, it comes partly out of my previous fascinations with medieval manuscripts and the evidence that they uh, transmit to us about spiritual ideas, artistic ideas, ideas about the universe and how it worked together with an ever-growing fascination with medieval magic, which is something I teach a lot, and then a personal fascination with the weather and the recurring cycle of the seasons. And something that comes up a lot when I'm teaching medieval magic is that it wasn't all just um, monks who didn't get out enough and spent too long reading strange texts in, in Latin and so on. A lot of it was intended to be practical and to have real-world use. And astrology, for instance, was defined in the Middle Ages as applied astronomy. So astronomy was the theoretical subject, and to them, astrology, where you calculated 
how the planets were moving and what they were doing was the practical subject. And putting all of that together, the idea that it's the movements of the planets that creates climatic change and meteorological phenomena and weather just made me very curious to find out more. Mm, okay, yeah. No, well, that's, see, there we go. That makes perfect sense. Well, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah no, I see it. That's, that's a very clear line then. Um, so let's talk about how this fits in the historiography. Um, I want to read aloud your opening sentence, which introduces this so nicely. You write, it is a truth universally acknowledged, at least among non-medievalists, the classical scientific knowledge died with the Roman Empire and had to be disinterred, disinterred once the Middle Ages were over. That's so delightful. It's, it's pretty great, <laughs> right? It's fun, uh, and it packs this punch because, as you know, as a, an historian, I know you're going to attempt to do the Lord's work here and fight the legacy of Petrarch and Gibbon. Um, but of course, your contribution goes beyond that as well. So, I would like to hear from you. What, what do you what do you consider to be your primary contribution to our understanding of this period? I'd say I'm trying to sort of bring things together more completely than they have been brought together before. Because if you look up traditional histories of meteorology, most of them will say meteorology, as we understand it, begins in the 19th century, mm. which is true. Modern meteorology is a 19th and 20th century thing. Then if you look back, they'll take you straight back to Aristotle and the ancient Greek astronomers and Aristotle's theory of the universe and his works with titles like meteorology. And some of them will even tell you in so many words that nothing happened in between. Once uh, the classical world died, there was no meteorology until modern meteorology came along. So it's an even bigger gap and an even worse disaster than we hear about with the history of medicine and the history of chemistry and so on. Um, and of course, as a medievalist, I thought, oh, come on. Um, it, it's not <laughs> as simple as that. And because of the previous work I've been doing on astrology and medieval magic, I knew that there's a whole world of Arabic texts which built upon uh, classical Greek work in astronomy and astrology and meteorology. And there was this enormous investment in the early centuries of the Arab Empire in astronomy and building observatories, really observing and charting the movements of the planets and the stars and bringing classical Greek astronomy right up to date. And sure enough, if you look at the centers where medieval Christians were encountering uh, medieval, earlier medieval Arabic works, then you see that they're translating astrological texts, including treatises on how the planets cause weather and how this can be used to predict weather with massive enthusiasm. And that was what really inspired me to bring things together and write this book, because I wanted to say, look, um, you're focusing too narrowly if you just assume that the only route along which ancient Greek theory and knowledge can have been transmitted to other parts of Western Europe is by staying within Western Europe. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Very much. Well, I mean, you mentioned um, you mentioned treatises from kind of around the world. So let's let's take a moment uh, while we're here to talk about your sources. 
what did what did you find? Where did you find them? What it, what did you use? Why? Like, what, what? Talk to me about this. Well, having satisfied myself that there was no existing history that did what I wanted to do, I thought, well, the only way to do this is to do it in chronological order. So first, I need to find out just what the classical sources actually said. Unfortunately. Most of those have been translated into English, which is a good thing for me because I can read Latin, but I am very bad on ancient Greek. So I had a look at the relevant things in modern English translation and then set about using the works of experts on um, medieval Arab and Arabic and Islamicate astronomers and astrologers to see what they had done, particularly with Ptolemy, Ptolemy of Alexandria who caused massive confusion in the Middle Ages because they thought he was one of the Ptolemies who had ruled ancient Egypt. But anyway, that's another whole story. (laughs) Ptolemy of Alexandria had produced this amazing mathematical survey of the movements of the planets and a whole model for explaining the complications of how most of the planets that were then known not only appeared to move forwards in the same direction around the earth all the time, but sometimes to stop still and go backwards, then stop still again and start moving forwards again. And he was really the first to come up with really satisfactory mathematical models that could be used not just to explain all of this, but to predict where a chosen planet would be on a chosen date in the future. Now, he was in the second century uh, CE. So already by the 9th century CE in the Arab world, his measurements were getting pretty out of date and you had to do a lot of extra work to update them. So they did the medieval world a massive favour by writing shorter, more specialist treatises on aspects of Ptolemaic astronomy and astrology and updating all his calculations and charts and tables. And some real geeks of astronomy and astrology, you would have to call them that, plunged in and translated all of Ptolemy's works into Latin. But others, and including me, really fell upon these shorter, more specialised treatises. And I had fun um, finding those in catalogues and then looking on the internet to see what manuscripts have been digitised and what they look like. Because one of the great gifts of digital humanities and the age of the internet is that so many medieval manuscripts have been digitized and you can find them there on the internet. So the manuscript side of me had a lot of fun with all of that. And then back I came to Western Europe to see what early medieval authorities had actually done with the parts of classical knowledge, mostly in Latin, that were available to them. And then finally tried to bring it all together by looking at late medieval treatises on applying astrology to world events and medicine and health as well as to weather. Mm -hmm. And then finally, coming back to one of my own, um, as I've already confessed, pet obsessions, the invention of the almanac, which in manuscript form comes much earlier than I at least had expected and already introduces the idea of doing sort of scientific observations of the weather and making records of how much rain fell on Oxford, for instance, day by day through a period of years and so on. And those manuscripts can be looked at as well. So 
that's a, a quick snapshot of my sources. And as you can tell, I had a lot of fun. Oh, that sounds delightful. Um, when is the earliest almanac you found? The kind of there is a debate about what almanacs were, and and I am treading heavily on the toes of the medical historians who've gone into print, arguing that the earliest almanacs were medical things. For me, almanacs are more wide ranging than that, and set out to deliver more detailed information about the planets and where they're going to be and what they're doing and so on. So within my definition, I come up with the same answer. It's going to be 14th century, because that's when there are enough specialist astronomers and astrologers in centers right across Christian Europe, and enough demand from practitioners like doctors and scientists and astrologers and weather forecasters and so on, um, who want detailed information about where the planets are going to be without having to sit down and do all the mathematics themselves. Oh, what? that's wonderful. Well, I know what I'll be doing with my afternoon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so nice. Okay. Um, so let's get into the body of your book here. So the book does indeed take a chronological approach and it covers a lot of ground, right? So your introduction begins in the ancient world and transitions into the early Middle Ages. But the body of work covers the 8th through the 16th centuries and explores developments in Europe and the Arab world. So this is a, this is a big task you've put in front of yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so your, your first chapter, Recreating Meteorology in the Early Middle Ages, Isidore and Bede, begins with an explanation of how medieval thinkers incorporated classical learning into their intellectual worldview. And I wonder if you could comment on this for me. So how did Isidore and Bede use the ancient world and, and what do they create? Okay, well, I, for a start, I think there's a slight difference between them, but both of them, I would say, were trying almost to kind of raid or retranslate the ancient world from their new Christian perspective. Because ever since the Renaissance, there's been this kind of established view that the end of the ancient world was a tragedy and that Christianity came along and superstition and ignorance, kind of barbarism, triumphed over classical knowledge. I'm trying to make the case in the context of my particular little field that it wasn't that simple. That for Christians, um, the whole point is that the created world was the work of an unknowable but incredibly important creator. And it was almost a duty for a true Christian to read the creation for clues about the creator. And Isidore was trying to transmit a sort of shortened and rather simplified version of classical theories about the universe and the world and how it worked. And Bede was then building on that and also trying to extract things that were particularly useful for the practical and spiritual daily lives of monks in a remote monastery in the early Middle Ages. So it's neither that they just set out to smash things because they were pagan, nor that they were ignorant or too too far from the centers of classical knowledge and therefore just kind of lost classical knowledge. It is that they have a whole different way of seeing the world and are trying to find those parts of the old world which are still useful. Mm -hmm. All right. 
So in the early medieval world, what's the relationship we see between astronomy and meteorology? In the early medieval world, they they kind of accept that there is a link, but nobody has a really clear theory, I would say, about what it is, because the Bible is very clear that um, weather events on one level follow a routine pattern. There's a lot in the Old Testament and also some in the New Testament about the patterns of the seasons, how celestial movements create those patterns of the seasons and so on. And you even get detailed references to the risings of particular stars and star groupings, um, how those relate to the seasons and to the kind of weather you can expect, all of which are paralleled in the classical world as well. So all of that information is there. And of course, there was a very old tradition also in the classical world of what I call weather signs, observing the colour of the sky, the appearance of clouds, the movement of clouds, the flight of birds, all these hints from the natural world about short-term weather that's coming in a particular place, say, in the next 24 hours. And famously, Christ, when rebuking people who looked for the wrong kind of signs, said effectively that it's okay to look at that kind of sign. So all of that is there in the Bible. But without having Ptolemy and without having the Arabic theories built on Ptolemy, nobody really knew how to turn the big theory of the movements of the planets and the stars and their impact on the seasons into a a practical model of meteorology. So there's nothing between the big global, literally, theories Mm -hmm. and um, the detailed little local weather signs. So what I find fascinating is that medieval meteorology, including Arabic and Islamicate meteorology in that, along with the Christian Latin versions that built on the Arabic versions, um, they really get into it and say, well, what creates the complicated, ever-changing influences on the atmosphere that turn into weather is the movements of the planets. And we've got the knowledge so that you can calculate what the planets are doing in any chosen time. And that, I think, is, is the big breakthrough. All right. I'd like to parse this a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's a major change in the 11th century when Europeans sought new sources of knowledge from the Islamic world, which I'll remind our listeners, in this era spreads from the Pyrenees across North Africa all the way to the border of India. Um, So we're talking about a pretty big body of material. Yeah, Yeah, massive, massive uh, learning, uh, centers of learning and a massive population. So uh, what are these Europeans getting from this world? Well, as you've already suggested, something incredibly rich, because looking at at how we link back to the classical world, I've been focusing on Ptolemy and Aristotle and on knowledge that comes effectively from ancient Greek sources. But the multiculturalism of that Arabic and Arabic speaking world um, was really important because ideas and models from Hindu astronomers and astrologers and Persian astronomers and astrologers comes in as well. So the models of the planets and the patterns of the planets and how those patterns repeat and so on are enriched by that knowledge. And so suddenly from the 11th century and 
gaining critical mass in the 12th century, the Latin Christian world in Europe sees that there's this whole world of knowledge there that they just didn't know about. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so then what emerges? Can you define astrometeorology for me? Astrometeorology is, it's a term that wasn't actually coined until uh, the 17th century in England when a contemporary writer needed a word to define this. But it's such a useful word that I took it and applied it back to the medieval period as well. And it's basically what you might call an astrological model of meteorology. So instead of the purely theoretical meteorology of the ancient world, this is a meteorology that applies astrology to um, understanding weather and seasons and climate. And I, I, um, I'm just I'm thinking about how this, why this is so important, right? Why this is coming up here. And why meteorology matters, and I, I don't know that you can give me an answer for an answer for that. But well, I'd say that meteorology as a theory was not necessarily so important, but um, weather forecasting as a practice was mm-hmm. crucial. In this, we've got um, largely uh, uh, rural such as society, um, and then it, with the idea too, right that that maybe does weather affect your body? I don't remember that. Yes. According to um, ancient Greek and Roman medicine, weather affects your body and age also affects your body and um, your general state of health can be kept good by making sure that you take those factors into account. Mm -hmm. So knowing what the weather is going to be doing is really important for your health, as well as you know, modulating what you do because of the stage of life you are in, and so on. But you know, if you think about sending out a, a fleet, either mm-hmm. for economic purposes or for military purposes, it's very useful to know if there are likely to be storms or not. Now, in a general mm-hmm. way, you can say, well, okay, you avoid seasons when you know there are likely to be storms in a particular region, but this kind of weather forecasting for the first time said, look, we can actually tell you when there's going to be a storm on a particular place. And and, I mean, Columbus, for instance, actually took an almanac with him and and works of this kind of um, meteorology and and seems to have used it as well as the maps and um, the, the, the text that he needed for navigating by the stars and so on in order to decide when to try to get to particular ports and parts of Mm. the sea. I mean, of course, he was making some serious mistakes, but that's not (laughs) the point. They believe that it had practical applications. This continues. I mean, this this model of of using um, astrometeorology, great term, continues. Then you write that in uh, 1862, the publication of Robert Fitzroy's The Weather Book, a treatise of practical meteorology, definitively signals the demise of astrometeorology. Yet you insert, uh, you assert that the the impact of medieval meteorology continues. And um, I'd like you to comment on this. What do we see from our medieval world? Well, for a start, uh, by the time that Fitzroy produced his new way of forecasting the weather, um, there'd been a long gap. The 
experts and philosophers of the 18th century had already declared that astrology was rubbish. So for a lot of people, that took astrometeorology down with it. But interestingly, the demand for detailed information about coming weather and the future was so great that the publication of the almanacs, which produced all of this stuff and sold it for very reasonable prices, um, continued. And even after Fitzroy started his new style of weather forecast, which were publicly ridiculed, the poor man suffered horribly, um, almanacs continued to be published and to be bought. And in this country, Old Moore's Almanac still does the same kind of thing every year and is still bought by a large number of people every year. And you get related types of almanacs in other countries as well. So the demand, just the sheer curiosity, I think, to see mm-hmm. um, what kind of things can be predicted was still there. Well, and I mean, there's something about just the idea that one can, right? Or that yeah. one should yes. make an effort is worth on, worth it on its own, right? That's yes. That's not something that's invented in the 19th century. No. No. And the idea that, you know, if if because after all, still in the middle of the 19th century, although the railways are re- starting to revolutionize transport, journeys are still a, a big thing. And knowing what the weather is likely to be like during the time you're thinking of traveling, mm-hmm. what's going to be going on in the place you're traveling to, it's worth taking all the precautions that you can. Mm hmm. It's interesting to, I mean, just I'm thinking about folk ways of knowing. I grew up on a farm and, you know, looking at the caterpillars or something to know if you're having this, this like terrible, if a terrible winter is coming. Uh-huh. And that's not that long ago. Um, there's just a lot of concern with what the weather is going to do with, to us and yeah. little, little faith that we'll ever be able to really predict it. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, it's easy in an age of, um, central heating and double glazing and all, and cars with beautiful heating in them and so on, to feel insulated from the weather. But climate change is really reminding us that the mm-hmm. elements can have a massive impact on us. No, absolutely. We are not safe. I mean, I, yeah, well, we see that a bunch. Yeah. Oh, this is, this is wonderful. This seems like it must have been a, a fun stop for you in yes. your, yeah. in your path. Yeah. Um, and really great sources. So uh, with your capacious intellectual curiosity uh, and reach, I can't guess what's next. So just tell me, what are you working on now? Um, Well, I'm actually staying with the almanacs because as you Hmm. have gathered, I find them really fun. But it struck me that trying to understand how people relate to and perceive climate change is something that's really important now. So What I would like to do is to go back over all of the surviving published uh, printed almanacs that were published through what's known as the Little Ice Age, so from the 15th Mm -hmm. century right up to the start of the 19th century, and to see what kind of weather was being predicted in all of the different almanacs through that period, compare it with what we know about what the weather was actually doing, and then see whose forecasts were most popular. And did people Hmm. want to buy optimistic forecasts, pessimistic forecasts that warned them that there were going to be disasters? Um, Is it a way to understand how people living through that time reacted to the climate changes and the unpredictability of the weather that was going on? 
No, that sounds, uh, that'll be great. That sounds, and also really fun, right? It sounds like it'll be a really good time for you. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> very good. An excuse to read still more almanacs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, um, and it's, the uh, you know, when you do history, as you know, I'm telling our, re- our listeners, really, when you do something this far back, it's uh, anything you can do to get in touch with how someone might be feeling. Um, you know, something other, something that's personal and applies to the public at large is, yes, is a delight. Yes. Because some of the people whose almanacs still survive scribbled things in them. And something I'm fascinated to look for is, did they comment like rubbish when an almanac (laughs) said it was going to be a beautiful summer and then it wasn't, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) With incredible frustration. Well, that's my crop gone. Thanks. Uh, all right. And thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. It was a really lovely chat and I loved the book. It was so much fun. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for your interest in the subject. That's been wonderful. Excellent. Well, uh, I'll be, uh, I'll get in touch when you're ready to chat about the next one then. Well, thank you. I look forward to that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.